You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are in the basement of the Labor Temple building, which we actually were in last week, but I didn't say that. Yeah. I thought we were still in Extreme History Headquarters because that's what was written on my page. <laughs> but we uh, are recording a bit earlier because our guest is on the East Coast. And so two hours earlier is right when one of the the most beloved walking tours happens for Extreme History. Yeah. Right, Crystal? Right, right. Yeah, so murders, we, madams, and no, mediums, no, right? No, actually today <gasps> it's oh. um, Business and Pleasure, Bozeman's oh. Red Light. District. Red light, yeah. madams. That's Which why is, I confused it. It's okay. beloved as well. It is. So, it yeah. is. Anything that has red light district. Um, yeah. We had a couple of people walk in from Houston right before, yeah. and yeah. they were wondering why it didn't look like that you know, a couple of streets in Amsterdam or whatever when there were. And, um, and and you so eloquently said, it's a historic brothel, not yes. a working one. Right, right. But we were complimented on our appearance nonetheless. Um, that was so, yeah, though not dressed the way you might expect. No, so that's no. good for us. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen. We do have a happen, weird though. window in the front of the Extreme History Building, though, that I've yeah. often thought has a brothel-esque kind of quality to it, a la Amsterdam. So anyway, um, today we are going to be talking and recording here in the bottom of the Labor Temple building, which is the headquarters for KGVM, where uh, Steve does recording for us, and we're very excited about that. And we're going to be speaking with Dr. Fiona Greenland, who um, has done some really interesting work on... um, cultural heritage, antiquities, and tomb robbing, and art police, and all of that in Italy. Um, So we are so excited to talk with Fiona, but um, first, Crystal, just um, how was your week? What's new? Well, we're coming to the end of our walking tour season. You mentioned the walking tours. Mm, and so sad. I know. It's kind of sad. Yep. I kind of get really, like, I get emotional. Don't cry. The, I know. I'll I know. try not All right. to. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but this weekend being, um, we're recording on Friday of um, Labor Day weekend. And, you know, this is kind of our last. Big um, hurrah. Yeah. Big hurrah for the mm. tours. And we're so, you know, it's it's always so fun to start the tour season. And it's always good to end the tour season, but it is a little bit sad. So we're, we have great tours happening all weekend long, and then that's it. But then we move into creating more tours and writing more tours for next summer. So that's always fun, too, the research and the writing of those That is exciting. That's is where really all the change fun. starts to happen. Yeah. And I saw your cards out on the table for History After Dark. Yeah, yeah. So we do a great event in October that's kind of... Um, focused in around Halloween on um, bringing characters from Bozeman's past to life again for one night. So we have some some local characters like John Bozeman, the town's namesake, and they mm. come to life for one night and they talk about the history of the town and, and of Montana and really of the nation um, in first-person character. So it's really fun. Everybody um, dresses in historic period attire, which we have these wonderful... 
costumers, uh, Jessica and Jennifer Jones, who outfit everybody. And so it's a really great event. outfits are amazing. They're amazing. It's like open-air theater. You yeah, talk to these like, people. It's almost like when you're at Disney World or something, yeah. only better because you're yeah. right there walking down Main Street. And, yeah. you know, it's fantastic. It, so it's a great event. And so we're that'll be coming up in October. So we're getting ready for that. But it's so, you know, a, kind of a, a good a good weekend ahead, but kind of a sad one as well. So what about you, Nancy? Yeah, well, it is interesting because everyone had to go back to school this past week, but then yeah. we get this break with Labor Day weekend. Yeah. And um, and the store has just been popping with back-to-school needs and interests, but also this last sort of rush of tourists kind of out yeah. for the Labor Day weekend. But I was looking forward to the piece we're going to be doing in the Bozeman Life magazine that's on the history of the yeah. building that my shop is in, that yes. Mocha is in. And Alara is going to be involved too because they are also in that same building. And I've got so many interesting questions about the history of the building. And I know you're going to be writing <laughs> so an article, but I was thinking yeah. that we probably need to do a podcast on oh, that. We, we totally should. Yeah. It's been, you know, it's been a really, really fun doing the research. And so um, I've kind of given, been giving you little bits and pieces yes. as, as, as I go doing the research. But it's been wonderful, and the history of that building is amazing. So you'll have to wait and read the article. I'm but. very excited, and I'm not going to wait. I'm going to peek. Okay, so um, so we should get back to our guests. Yes, right? we should. We should. Okay. Yes. All right. So welcome, Fiona. We're so excited to have you with us. Glad to be here. Thanks. So we're going to start off by telling our listeners a little bit about you. Fiona Greenland is an assistant professor of sociology and assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Virginia. She studies cultural policy and the politics of national heritage. Her book, Ruling Culture, Art Police, Tomb Robbers, and the Rise of Cultural Power in Italy, was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021. And that's really going to be what we're talking about today with Fiona. The book situates the emergence of national symbols and icons in Italy's longer historical entanglements of cultural elites, state officials, and tombroli, or tomb robbers. I hope I didn't butcher that pronunciation. Her new work examines the relationship between cultural destruction and civilian deaths in the Syrian war. Greenland's work has been published in Sociological Theory, Nations and Nationalism, the Oxford Journal of Archaeology, and the International Journal of Cultural Property, among other outlets. Fiona was a classical archaeologist for 10 years before training to become a sociologist. So welcome, Fiona. We're so glad to have you on the podcast today. And we always begin by asking our guests how they got interested in the subject of history and or archaeology. And in your case, you were first trained, as Nancy said, as a classical archaeologist and worked in that field for over a decade before training to become a sociologist. So please tell us when and how you first became interested in classical archaeology, as well as why you decided to make that switch a little later on to sociology. Great. Thanks for having me. It's such a treat to spend the afternoon with archaeologists. Well, I still consider myself to be an archaeologist, even if I've gone down the path of sociology. I became interested in classical archaeology in college. Um, I studied at the University of Michigan, where I had the privilege of working with classicists and archaeologists there. And I did my first excavation in Pompeii. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow. Okay, that's that's impressive. Yeah. My first one was in Cyprus, which was amazing to me, but I've always wanted to go to Pompeii. Wow. Wow. 
How funny. And you still should. It, it's still revealing its secrets, new discoveries every year. Yeah. Very vibrant and rich site. And one of the real gifts of doing that project was that I was able to get to know people in the nearby community. Mm. We lived mm. in a campsite not far from the excavation site. So every morning we would walk with our equipment um, and pass by shops and apartment buildings and see locals going about their business. And it really struck me as a 20 year old from Michigan that um, people live in the presence of such majesty, um, that antiquity was part of the daily fabric for them. And I suppose that's when I first got curious about what archeological materials mean in living, breathing communities, right? Because that training that I did as a classical classical um, archaeologist was firmly centered on how people in the past used these things, why they created them, of course, trading routes, um, what ideas and influences were coming from other parts of the Mediterranean. But I'm sure thinking about it now that that planted the seeds of the sociological inquiry. Um, Why do people care so much about these things today? And Italy was just such a great place to have that early lesson. So I took up sociological training when I realized that many of the questions that I had about these objects and sites were to do with contemporary use veneration and valuation of objects um, by vibrant communities. And so if I could borrow a, a term from the anthropologists, I wanted to be able to do a thick description. Right. I, I love that. To, I love that term. Mm-hmm. Clifford Geertz. Absolutely love it. Yeah. That's right. And a thick description of the relationships around archaeological materials. And of course, that's something that archaeologists are, are interested in too. Um, but with this project, I was committed at the outset to a sociological approach and in particular to the antiquities market. And I guess the last thing I'll say about that, about this convergence of archaeological training and sociological training, was that when it came to studying the market in archaeological materials, I wanted to do this not just as an economic question in terms of supply and demand or market profits or laws and regulations. What I really wanted to do was ask about the relationships or networks that populate this entire space of the circulation of objects and questions like what is the archaeological market doing today? What's it there for? Um, And whose interests are being served by this market? What can we say about that as well? So I concluded that these questions are just best addressed by combining sociology and archaeology. And that's what I've tried to do across all of my projects. I I think it's so fascinating. And as Crystal knows, so much of my work um, earlier, we did a podcast on it, but I, like you, you spend a chunk of your research actually talking to people about what interests them in archaeology, whether they're collectors or tomb robbers or, you know, tombroli or whatever. And I did the same thing here in Montana and in the West. So just so many of my questions and ideas and thoughts, I think I was drawing in a very sociological approach such as yourself. And it definitely was not what most archaeologists <laughs> are doing or interested in, but it was so fun to then come across your research and and see you doing this deep, you know, basically ethnography and then unpacking of this whole kind of cultural system in Italy. Um, 
plus it's just such a sexy place to be doing archaeology. I mean, Italy's just, I just got back. I was there for two weeks earlier this summer and just fantastic. Um, so, so thanks for that. That's really interesting to hear about. And, um, and I think that's made this, this book just so fun, uh, for me in particular to read. Um, so your book, I'm just going to say the title again, so that we get it into our listeners' heads, Ruling Culture, Art Police, Tomb Robbers, and the Rise of Cultural Power in Italy. It traces this history of how art and um, architecture, antiquities, went from originally being the property of the people who owned the lands that they were found on, that they were deposited on. So you have local or foreign elites that own property. And very much like in the United States and other places, people would then explore, dig up and and um, do things with those resources that were on their property or give people, other people permission to come and dig them up. So they went from being sort of this private property of landowners, elite landowners, to becoming really the property of the state, the nation state, which was ostensibly for the benefit of the people. So Italian heritage landmarks and objects are now protected also by a separate unit of military police known as the Art Squad. Just love that name. Um, But you point out that um, Italian antiquities, archaeological remains, and art remain constantly under threat from looters, tomb robbers, illegal art markets, and even more recently are now exploited to some degree by corporate entities. Um, But you make the case that these kinds of threats are actually an important part of what gives Italy such prestige on the world stage as a cultural power. So we want to get back to that point in a little bit more detail. But I want to start first with um, a quote you recounted early on in the book that really kind of sets the stage. Um, You recount a statement by um, the former Italian president in 2004. Can you say his name so I don't butcher it? Carlo Ezeglio Ciampi. Thank you. I wouldn't have gotten that right. Okay. (laughs) And so in 2004, when he was being interviewed and and asked about the art squad and if it would be a good model for other countries to adopt, his reply essentially was, yes, of course, people should adopt this model. And and of course, Italy started it because Italy is the world's greatest cultural power. And he just said that statement just baldly as if it was a fact. And of course, I think you recount in there, Italy does have, I think, the greatest number of UNESCO World Heritage Sites and all that. But you say it stopped you in your tracks. And um, and then in your book, I think you do an amazing job pulling that apart, that idea of Italy being the world's greatest cultural power. And you kind of interrogate what that actually means to be that. And, and uh, so I wanted you to maybe start by telling us what that means to be a cultural power and why Italy leads the world in that regard. Yeah, what a great question. I think I say in the book that I was insulted when I came across that yes. statement. What, is that <laughs> what does that say about the rest of us? Yeah. Right, right. Everybody else's culture. So cultural power can be thought of in many ways. I use it to describe the leveraging of artistic objects and aesthetic forms um, drawn from archaeology, but also other um, types of art, to leverage those things for authority in domains that have no direct relevance to culture. So we can think of a a few examples. Mussolini giving artworks to Hitler Mm. to acquire favors and um, sweeten the political deals. We can think of repatriation in both directions. 
as part of bigger discussions about economic trade agreements. Um, and we can think about the justification of specific forms of governance on the basis that art and culture is under threat. And I think that connects with um, your earlier, earlier point, Nancy, about um, how this is like perpetuated this myth of like the constant threat. But I think there are two other variants on cultural power that are worth mentioning and that I discuss. One is influence. Mm. I mentioned the work of a terrific sociologist called Victoria Reyes, and she demonstrates through her work on UNESCO World Heritage Sites that a high number of sites make reference to Italy to explain their own significance, even when those sites have no demonstrable connection to Italy or to Italian people. Mm, that's, that's interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So, so she characterizes this as a form of cultural dominance that perpetuates heritage bias. And I think that we could say that influence is one form of cultural power that Italy has um, developed astutely. And then I would just like to mention a third form of cultural power, and that is crystallized in these public-private partnerships, wherein private firms pay to conserve and renovate historic sites and objects in exchange for aligning their brand with those iconic sites and objects. Scholars have called this heritage branding Mm. and the government defends it as necessary saying that the Italian public can't foot the bill to pay for every archeological thing in the country. So cultural power is multifaceted and it's pervasive. Hmm. That's so interesting, Fiona. When I read that in your book about the Coliseum being um, supported by a um, a gentleman who owns a, a very fashionable shoe store <laughs> in Rome, that just blew my mind that that he so he doesn't own the Coliseum. Can you explain? But it says he has a, a, um, a high level partnership with the Colosseum. And, and critics kind of accuse yeah. the mayor of Rome of, of selling the Colosseum to him. So it's kind of that ownership, uh, you know, the alignment of the brand is almost characterized as if he owns it, yeah. you know, like in this accuse that you could sell it or something. Yeah. yeah. So, so Nancy and I were t- just, were talking before we got on with you about that. And just, can you explain that a little bit more um, for our listeners? Cause I think that's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So the, um, the company that you've referred to, Todd's, is um, a high-end shoe and accessories brand. We say Todd's in the United States. Italians probably say Todd's, but let's say Todd's. Okay. And under the um, leadership of Diego de la Valle, the longtime CEO of this company, a deal was struck with um, the mayor of Rome, with the municipality, um, and with the state, that the company would provide um, the bulk of the money required to restore the Colosseum. So, um, Nancy, you were just there. You probably saw, like, the the fruits of this multi-year project now. The conservation work has been excellent, um, and the archaeologists on site um, have done a Terrific job, but it was very costly. Mm-hmm. And um, they, you know, there were serious structural issues in and around the Coliseum prior to this. So nobody argued about whether the, the work needed to get done. It was how to pay for it. So this um, deal stirred up a lot of strong feelings. And proponents said this is a great new chapter in the cultural heritage of Italy because um, we do, in fact, need to restore our 
archaeological sites and objects to um, their former grandeur. And we need to like stave off complete loss and destruction. The critics pounced on this and said, this is just opening a door to private capital so that they can um, take over what are effectively public goods. So this um, conversation turned into a bigger conversation and a much deeper and historically layered one about privatization, about the responsibility of the state. Some people invoked the fascist era and said, um, we risk Mm -hmm. backtracking down this dark path of private interests actually taking over the public and um, Mm -hmm. public politics. Like there was something existential for Mm -hmm. critics of that, um, for the nature of that criticism of that deal. So where do we stand today? Well, Todd's did not buy it. They didn't take it over. There was um, concern that maybe their logo would be like forever, um, um, associated or yeah etched into the side of the coliseum that didn't happen either you can go to the website today and see how they've made use of that conservation project in um, various campaigns but this is an ongoing issue it's not going away anytime soon there have continued to be public private partnerships we don't hear about all of them they don't all trigger public scandals but very quietly the um, ministry of culture continues to enlist the help or entreat um, proposals from private firms to do this sort of cultural heritage conservation work. So Crystal and I were kind of marveling that this hasn't happened yet in the United States. And then we were kind of (laughs) discussing a little bit about why. So we could circle back on that at at a different point. But but I, I wanted to say, like, are there rules about what firms could do this? Like, are they explicit? Like, if Amazon can said, we want to fund the restoration of the Coliseum, would they have allowed a company, a foreign company, to do that, do you think? It's a great question. Yes, provided the work is actually overseen by qualified professionals. So I think, so I'm hesitant because it's really hard right now to pin down what's a foreign firm and what's an Italian firm. Absolutely. Everything is right right, is global and multinational. And I'm, I'm kind of like going through the, the Rolodex in my head of different firms that have paid for different things. And they all have like vested interests here and there, but what they all try to do is emphasize their Italian bona fides. Exactly. And that was what I felt like I was picking up on. And even the sense that this made in Italy, we're part of Italy. It's an Italian brand. And so it's okay that this corporate firm is involved to the degree. I just, I just wonder if the work was necessary enough and, and the dollar signs were right, if, if it would matter. And if the firm was, was really a CEO who was American, you know, and traditionally headquartered, you know, outside of, of Italy, it would be, um, it would be interesting to see how that would play. And if that would get a lot of press, because it, it's, it sounds like certain things tend to trigger those arguments. Um, so we'll come, we'll come back around to that a bit again, sort of at the end. But, um, but your book, you know, sort of then goes into recounting historically, that transition I mentioned earlier, um, about moving from that private ownership, land based elite kind of ownership, that system to one of where the nation 
it, it's sort of a way to also bring Italy all together under a flag and make people feel like they're all part of a nation state, but that that they own all the antiquities for the benefit of the people, but even those things that are yet to be discovered, even the things that haven't come to light yet, those are owned by the state, even though we don't know what exists yet, you know, so before an Etruscan tomb is found, you know, they can claim ownership of it. Um, so this, this was accomplished under a law that was passed in 1909, um, in part because of the fear of foreign collectors. And I think in particular, you mentioned some Americans who were paying huge prices to acquire art and antiquities from Italy, so that things were leaving Italy, and that elites who owned these lands and let people come were allowing that to happen. And so the idea was to put a halt to that. So tell us a little bit about why that transition happened, maybe when it did, how it happened, and then and then how that changed um, the management of cultural heritage in Italy. Yeah, and I like your emphasis on that um, aspect of that 1909 law, antiquities yet to be discovered. The law says in the ground and on the ground, movable and immovable. It tries to be as comprehensive through space and time as possible, right? which is really quite profound if you think about it. So this was the first time that the Italian state asserted authority over even those archaeological materials that none of us knows about, Mm -hmm. and that it could be done without having to justify an ethnic connection or some kind of resonance with um, a contemporary group. It was enough to say it's in our soil and it belongs to us. It's in our borders and that's that. Yeah. Correct. The invocation of the national soil, which was not limited to Italy at this time. We can think of the 1906 Antiquities Act in the United States to um, kind of firmly put government oversight over our national parks, for example. But to go back to what was happening in Italy, um, Italian unification is a 20-year process that winds down in 1870. And as part of creating the Italian nation state, a national museum service was created. And so was um, a national antique or archeological service. And this created some friction because there were vested interests in the private ownership of Italian art and archeological materials. And those private interests were art market dealers, agents, middlemen, Cicerones, who took foreign tourists around to help them um, find, just kind of like scout out um, choice finds to take home, and wealthy Italian families, Italian Mm -hmm. elites, Mm -hmm. who would rely on family art collections to um, liquidate periodically when they needed cash. So that was like a meaningful source of income for Italian elites. So the creation of museums and then the archaeological service has, on the one hand, scholars and professionals who are concerned about conservation in place and the accessibility of objects to the Italian public. And on the other hand, long-term invested interests in a thriving private art market. Right. So I, I say a little bit about this in the book, that this is like a centuries-old um, 
global or kind of like world circulation of Italian Roman and Etruscan and early Christian right, right. archaeological materials, which would have been circulating in um, private collections or given as gifts. So Everyone there's a lot was doing this. There. All these European nations were going and taking from other places and circulating them around. I mean, the stories are amazing when you hear them. So, so Italy is one of many, but, but this is what everyone was doing late 1800s, early 1900s. So how does, how does this change? How do they get this law passed to change? everything there's there is a slow and steady buildup across the city states across the regions starting to protect um, the objects especially church objects because ecclesiastical items were a hot ticket item in this global trade um, so that's happening also outside of italy there are more and more American millionaires mm. who want to buy up Italian art and Renaissance art becomes very popular, sought after. But the buying power of American tycoons outstrips what the Italian government can pay. Because before this law, the system was a little strange to think about now. When a foreign buyer offered a price on an Italian artwork, it was up to the government to match or exceed that price to be able to keep it. But the Italian government looked at the buying power of these American um, capitalists and said, we can't do it. Um, and this is going to be a long-term losing battle for us. So through these like two um, strands of activity, the regional sensibility about protecting culture for the people and concerns about the buying power of the foreign market, the national government comes together and says, um, why don't we just declare this national property? It's also constituent with um, what's happening in other European nation states and the United States in trying to form national identity through physical objects, including archaeological objects. Yeah, that is amazing. I mean, and I, I remember reading about so much about the passage of the American um, Antiquities Act and so much of their concern was how much of the material from the Southwest was heading over to Europe, you know, that was being dug up and sold on the market and we couldn't keep it there. And and the law doesn't protect all remains in the United States, but anything owned by the federal government, you know, anything below the surface. So we still have that private, you know, split, which doesn't happen in Italy. They go full on with everything. Um, so that's that's so interesting. Um I'm just going to take a quick station break here, and then we'll get back with another question okay. from Crystal. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman, or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Dr. Fiona Greenland about her book entitled Ruling Culture, Art Police, Tomb Robbers, and the Rise of Cultural Power in Italy. Okay, Fiona. So in your book, you also kind of coming after this 1909, you kind of recount the rise of fascism under Mussolini and how Mussolini wielded an essentialist view of Italian antiquities to serve his nationalist political goals. So tell us a little bit about the impact of the, these fascist politics on the scholarly disciplines of both anthropology and archaeology, as well as the circulation of these antiquities on the art market. So Mussolini is an interesting, complicated, and ultimately devastating character mm. in all yeah. of this. He went from sympathizing with the neo-futurists' rejection of classical antiquity, which they saw as an impediment 
to mm-hmm. Italian modernization. He went from that to vigorously embracing classical antiquity as a staple of fascism. But his version of antiquity was highly selective and sanitized. Mussolini favored an aesthetic that we would today associate with the early imperial period. So he really wasn't interested in prehistory or late stuff. Mm -hmm. He played up ancient Rome's militancy and its imperial expansion. So, so really, really this this idea of the Roman Empire, that's what he's interested in, the power of that empire. Nothing else was really as significant. Okay. okay. Right? And then he f- indulged in a fantasy mm. of population homogeneity. So we all know today that Rome was a multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic, um, multi-religious um, city and, and society. He um, erased those inconvenient reminders of um, population heterogeneity, of um, diversity, and instead manufactured this narrative of like unity and collectivism, a kind of like Mm -hmm. pure Roman fantasy. So you asked about what effect this had on the disciplines of anthropology and archaeology. His administration exerted tight control over the production of archaeological knowledge. So who got to dig, who got to hold university positions, who got to work in museums or choose things for display. All of this was overseen by the fascist administration. And it's also interesting to remember that only archaeological materials that fit this Mm. fascist fantasy about Mm. the past were prioritized for conservation, preservation, publication, and museum display. A a notorious example of this is the clearance and destruction of historic neighborhoods in Rome near the Roman Forum. That's when with, you when you recounted that. I, I, I didn't even know that history. I mean, I, I, I knew just a little bit of what how similarly things happened in Germany for anthropologists and archaeologists, but I didn't actually know about this clearing of whole medieval neighborhoods out of the way so that, like, what's that big comic you show of Mussolini with the, the pickaxe? It's like, get all these slums out of the way and make the forum or the Colosseum look better. I mean, oh, that's devastating. It's, that's right. You refer to an iconic magazine cover, an image of him holding a pickaxe, chopping away at one of these old buildings, which his administration described as a slum. So um, these slums were inhabited by people and they had long and rich histories. So we can like just remember that every archaeologist knows when you are working to excavate a site, there are layers of history. You're, you might have a set of research questions that necessitate the removal of top layers, which is also part and parcel of losing those layers materially, but also documenting everything as you go, um, drawing out not only physical artifacts, but floral and faunal remains so that we have as complete a picture as possible of those later um, historical periods. He wasn't interested in that. So really just wants to like demolish those more recent layers to get to the Roman stuff that he cared about. Wow. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was a second part of the question about his effect on the art market. Yes, and yes. yes. And, and this is um, something that I found very distressing in the historical work. And it's also a powerful reminder of um, how cultural power can take a really dark turn. So from about 1938 onwards, um, there were concerns that 
Italian Jews who were leading, leaving the country were taking cultural property with them. Mm -hmm. And so new laws were put into place to stop that. In 1939, a new law appears on the book and it um, empowers the government in different ways to exert control over cultural patrimony. But get this, there were exceptions made for high-ranking Nazi officials. Mm -hmm. So while there was um, a tighter public art market, there was a thriving private one through these side deals Mm -hmm. between Mussolini Hitler, Goering, and other high-ranking officials. All of this has been documented in in historic papers from the era. What stands out for me was how this, um, like, occasional, exceptional gift-giving from Mussolini to Hitler became a routine practice, and hundreds of antiquities and artworks left the country in this way. So um, what I found fascinating and unexpected was that the remnants of that infrastructure were with us until the late 90s, early 2000s. So there was a sensibility about the government's um, exertion of control over archaeological materials and artworks that's derived from that fascist period. Being able to gift these in exchange for something sort of along political lines. Yeah. More that the government would have the right to remove cultural property from private owners. That was firstly justified on the basis that um, Italian Jews were not full citizens, not deserving of a role in public life. And um, it kind of like that sensibility persisted. Goodness gracious. Even if the practice didn't. Right, right. So I want to talk a little bit, Fiona, about the Art Squad. We've mentioned this. Yeah. (laughs) What a cool name. I know, I know. (laughs) Do they have capes? Like, you just kind of want to know. I know. I I keep um, picturing the Incredibles in my mind. Like, you know, like the power. <laughs> but anyway, um, the the Italian art squad is famous, and there is even a video game um, <laughs> a, about them that we've talked about a little bit. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. But um, so the Italian art squad, can you tell us a little bit how they were established, the art squad, and what they are charged with doing, and what some of their most renowned accomplishments are? Happy to. The Art Squad are a, an elite branch of the military police, and they fall under the Carabinieri. They were formed in 1969 as a very small unit and have grown ever since. Um, so today they stand out for their sophisticated, highly skilled training, which combines elements of armed police work and training in history, stratigraphy, numismatics, prehistoric objects. Some of them specialize in underwater archaeology. Some of them specialize Hmm. in um, books and manuscripts. So the training path for these art squad officials is rigorous. And it's also very competitive. Um, You can't just walk into the headquarters in Rome and declare yourself an art squad agent. You must first do the required years in the um, armed forces and then take university courses sponsored Mm -hmm. by the um, Carabinieri and the Ministry of Culture 
and then take an exam, a very competitive exam. So it's a fascinating process of formation and um, really yeah, it makes them sound even time. cooler. Do they have like codes like 007 or yeah. they like, do they have, I know, I know. I, I, I kind of <laughs> they're smart and they're trained like in, in the military. Or, I know. Okay. I feel like this yeah, would be a really good movie. Good movie. Yeah. Exactly. We keep or, or, thinking, Fiona, you got to write a script. Yeah, I mean, seriously. Yeah. Tomb Robbers yeah. and the Art Squad. Yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Better name for sure than that, but still. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Back to back to your I'm answer. Super excited about the art squad. <laughs> it, is, it is that right? Um, I can't tell you what the secret codes are. I'm oh, sorry. Okay, then you'd have to kill us. I yeah. know, right? <laughs> she probably is one. I know. I know. Okay, anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so this um, this art squad works at the intersection of conservation and law enforcement, and they also, this is crucial, work with the state prosecutor to go after objects that have wrongfully been removed from the country. So a little bit of context here that's, that's um, familiar for anybody who spent time in Italy is that the public has some ambivalence about the police. Mm-hmm. Every public does, perhaps, but in Italy, lower-ranking police units like the polizia are the butt of many jokes for being inefficient or for being um, corrupt. Those are like the public impressions of who they are. That's not the case with the art squad. They stand out. They um, are celebrated in the press for their um, heroic efforts to protect national culture. They're celebrated in um, popular fiction and they've been the subject of everything from um, like TV documentaries to radio programs Mm -hmm. and um, comic books. So it's a very like lively cultural arena in addition to being like an actual unit that goes out and enforces the law and investigates archaeological crime. They also have some of the best uniforms, may I add? (laughs) (laughs) No capes, but good uniforms. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. We need an art squad in America. We definitely need an art squad. I know. Mm -hmm. The Italians have some good ideas there, which is, which is what they were talking about in 2004. So what are, what are some of the things that they're well known for having accomplished from, from getting back or, or you know, figuring out? Probably the standout episode of Getting Back involves the Metropolitan Museum of mm. Art and a brilliant um, uh, Greek pot that was found in a, in a, in a cemetery in Cervetri. And this, um, this pot called the Euphronius Crater somehow made it into the Metropolitan Museum of Arts collection in around 1970, 1971. And they paid a million dollars for it. And it was a celebrated event, a celebrated acquisition for this museum. But almost immediately, the Italian government asked questions about its provenance. How is it they had never heard of this thing or seen this thing? It's huge. It's beautifully decorated. It was in pristine condition. It's an unmissable thing. So they wanted to know where it came from. Now, today, these kinds of questions about provenance are routine, and they will be covered by the press in depth. And I think there's a growing public sensibility um, about provenance as an important question, because it's connected to the notion that 
local communities have a right to um, to live with the the objects that come from their their past. I think this is the case even in the United States. I mean, yeah, you two absolutely. have that expertise in the Western states, but you know, I think there's much more mm-hmm. public awareness of what provenance is and why it matters. That wasn't the case in 1971. So for a long time, um, the the concerns of the Italian officials were ignored. Mm-hmm. But through a few lucky breaks and through persistent um, criminal investigation, the art squad working with the prosecutor's office put together a watertight case and that culminated in the repatriation of that object from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It was considered a breakthrough. Um, it received international coverage. It was presented as a David and Goliath story. Mm-hmm. Here was this relatively small unit in Italy capable of bringing down a global um, art institution, which had for a long time not felt it necessary to explain or document the provenance. I I only would hear about it when um, just in teaching in archaeology classes, it would always be given as an example of um, repatriation among, you know, nations, you know, the Elgin marbles and the Euphronius crater. And, you know, it, it, but I never really understood the history and the importance and the significance. And I, I sure I would have remembered the art squad if that was like a bit part of it. So it's, uh, it's fascinating to, to know a lot more about that story because I'm sure that sent, waves of concern through so many museum institutions and looking at their acquisitions and wondering if the art squad was going to be coming after some of their celebrated works. Um, I mean, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they, they have it now. And is it on display somewhere? Do you know, in Italy, the crater? Yeah. So when I was last in Italy, it was in the Villa Giulia and that's a few years ago. My understanding is is that it's been moved to another um, public collection um, I will say, too, that this notion of provenance mm. is, is so fundamental now and, again, like taken for granted by archaeologists and, and those who study the archaeological market. But um, it's, it's not just the quantity of paperwork, right, that um, a museum would be showing. It's um, the verification of it. And now there are people like um, Victoria Reed at Boston Museum of Fine Arts, who does full-time provenance work and research. There are archaeologists um, and anthropologists who write extensively about um, provenance. I'm thinking here of Maureen Kersall at mm-hmm, DePaul University, mm-hmm. Patty Gerstenblith also at the DePaul um, in the law school. But um, this has taken a while to develop into a rigorous um, field of scholarship where there's really recognition of um, what is involved in Providence. So what the Met proffered in defense of its purchase of this thing was a couple of bills of sale. Mm -hmm. What they didn't explain really was where it had been excavated and really glossed that over. Today, that's not acceptable. It's not enough to have some recent market records. the UNESCO 1970 convention insists on it that you be able to show that the object was removed from its site legally and lawfully. Mm-hmm. And that's, so that's taken a long time to change. Right. And it's fascinating because it is a Greek vase, right? So I just, mm-hmm. I want to do a little turn here from this into this discussion of having, having state ownership over anything found within the borders. And this idea you you bring up, and it's kind of woven throughout your, your book, which um, 
I find has very fascinating parallels with the U.S. This idea that anything, whether it's Etruscan, whether it has any relationship to <laughs> the actual people living in Italy today, it's considered, you know, owned by the state and sort of national heritage and something the public um, should feel a connection to. And, and sort of that's the whole reason for having this whole infrastructure to um, have state ownership, preserve it, um, and and have this, this great power to be able to even reach with on their borders. Because we have this same sense of the federal government passed that antiquities law, and then much later, much more constricting laws about who could um, excavate or collect anything off public lands. And um, and that's very complicated because we have forest lands, national park lands. We've got um, BLM land before was GLO office. So it was land that the government was holding, but could have become private because people were homesteading it still and buying it. So super complicated of who could legally and then who it belonged to, because again, the idea was it belonged to the government, even if it wasn't unearthed. But in our case, most of the archaeological finds are all those uh, materials and objects made by Native Americans. So it's not our heritage, our cultural heritage that we can make claim over, but yet that the parks are always and the and and federal lands are always saying, you know, you can't remove this stuff trying to make the case it belongs to all of us. And and really it has nothing to do with a lot of the Euro-American public that goes to these places. Um, so there's this very strange kind of relationship there. And I want to leave that idea dangling as we move into talking about the Tomboroli, because I think they are sort of playing with that idea that why does the state get to claim ownership in a way that's not entirely, you know, unconnected to that disjuncture between who made the remains that are deposited there and then who is claiming ownership and connection to them, you know, in the present. So you talk about um, the Tomboroli or the tomb robbers and, and how they're perceived in Italian society. And, um, they kind of have this this folk hero uh, sort of image. I think they probably revel in that to some degree. But I loved that you went and interviewed several people, and it sounded very interesting, a very interesting process by which you... Especially be- with your IRB requirements. <laughs> I get, You know, when you were, when I was reading that in the book, I'm like, oh my gosh, that would be so hot, hard. Yeah. The internal review board for universities have very strict guidelines on how you do interviews and so you know interviewing these guys in a bar you know I, I was it has to be in a public place a public so you're place, safe so you're, but yeah, also oh, you safe. know then their names because you know they're committing things that are against the law you know so there's a lot going on there that just goes into the interview process so we encourage people to read the book yeah. even just for that part alone <laughs> um, but you interview them and you and you, then you analyze you know what you heard from them because you, you want to understand what are the motivations of these folks and parts of the conversation you had was their own discussions of how they wanted to be referred to. And I very much related to this. You know, what is a tomb robber? Um, who, who is a pot hunter? Who is a looter in our country? Who, who is an amateur or avocational archaeologist? Who's just a collector? You know, there's sort of varying degrees to which you engage with archaeological materials outside of professional, permitted, and legal channels. And um, people see themselves sometimes as doing a service to their own community, um, or they feel they have the right because this land has been in their family for generations. And and they really care about it, and they really want to know it, and they want to share the information or things like that. They're not 
you know, at the bottom rung of of people who are going in with massive machinery, equipment, destroying sites just so they can sell it for money. You know, that's kind of considered the lowest rung. But a lot of these Tomboroli and, and others who were collectors out in the Southwest um, in the West see themselves as something different and a bit of a bit of um, a folk hero, people that discover things that haven't been discovered by the professionals and bring them to light. Um, so they, um, they object to some of the antiquities laws as hypocritical um, because it criminalizes them, the local people, and it benefits the professionals and the officials who they feel profit at the expense of the people. So, um, so talk to us about what you, what you learned and sort of this complicated relationship that the Tomboroli have with um, antiquities in Italy. The tomb robbers I interviewed denied being tomb robbers. Mm. And as you suggest, they had different terminology for what they do. They were hobbyists, collectors, right. enthusiasts, self-taught archaeologists, citizen scientists. Right. <laughs> Some of them had, in fact, worked for years on excavation teams for foreign archaeologists and field schools. So before field schools started to take over large numbers of undergraduates to do um, the more rudimentary field work, um, local people were employed. And they were employed because they were really good. They know the landscape. They know the stratigraphy. And they're able to um, provide useful like, information that only a local would know about where um, artifact deposits have been um, found. So this is relevant because tomb robbers do not wish to be associated with tomboroli. I learned the hard way when I used that term in an interview with a man who said that his uncle had taken him um, to explore tombs and they did so illegally. I thought it was perfectly reasonable to describe this man's uncle as a tomborolo, but he put me in my place. And that was um, a window onto this complicated cultural landscape, social landscape, how people identify and why. And you're quite right that distancing themselves from the law, rejecting it on the basis of their own credible claims to being true locals is part of that game. And I write in the book about this um, government film in the 1960s where they interview a couple of high profile looters um, in and around um, Cerveteri. Right. And one of these men points out that foreign dignitaries, including the King of Sweden, have been brought in with red carpet treatment and allowed to excavate. Um, and he says, with incredulity, I, I live here, I grew up here, these artifacts are as much mine, if not more, than they are his. So what's really going on here, he suggests, is that when the government invokes for the people, they don't mean the actual people. It's, um, an, it's an assertion of control that um, only ever allows a particular form of state-regulated archaeology. But these locals see themselves as archaeologists. So yeah. that was like fascinating. But I think that you're right that there's a lot of continuity with the kind of um, legal or extra-legal um, excavation that goes on in this country. And I'm even reluctant to refer to it as excavation because I don't think that everybody who's digging for pots in the Southwest 
cares at all about preserving right. records. I right. think they're just going after objects. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. I mean, it's interesting when you say ones that have been trained by foreign, you know, excavators that have come over that, you know, I was on a project, I was on a field school in Cyprus, and you you always hired local people. I was on a field um, project in Turkey, huge numbers of local people. They're trained, they're excellent at what they do. They rely on that work, um, as do the people that then feed, you know, the whole crew. But um, but these people really are quite good at what they do. And then if the government is no longer allowing these foreign groups to have permits and to come in and excavate, and that resource dries up, they have all these skills now and no way to use them and no actual way to get a permit themselves. So if they're going out and doing any of this work, it must seem like a bit of a conundrum. Not not to, I mean, I, I don't know if they're selling them, but there's no way for them to stay engaged in that kind of work anymore if, if these layers of laws are going away. So I can imagine, I mean, out here, we don't have pots really in Montana, but we have plenty of collectors and people who walk the landscape so much and know it so well, they're the ones that find the very, very old Paleo-Indian sites. And someone did a wonderful study that if you didn't engage with these collectors or amateurs and share information, um, over 50% of the sites we have that date to 10,000 years ago or so, we would not have any knowledge of. And so there has to be some kind of relationship, but the derogatory, the words you use, just as you had, I've had those experiences, it makes such a difference and it can be so insulting. And yet you don't want to elevate somebody who's, so it's complicated. It's a really interesting area of research to do that I think most archaeologists, like I I explain it as the deer in the headlights look like when archaeologists when someone comes up who says oh yeah I collect like we get totally afraid because we don't know what to say we don't want to encourage it and yet we we think well but I don't want to discourage and and have this person then just go off and and keep doing it without exchanging information yeah correct and in fact archaeologists um who are members of the major professional organizations have to agree to adhere to a code of ethics such that you can't publish unprovenanced objects um, or even answer an email with a photo of an unprovenanced object in which you um, sort of authenticate it, right? Authenticated so so then it has more value on a market. mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there is still this problem, and I love the deer in the headlights metaphor, this problem of the distribution of knowledge, Mm -hmm. of expertise, and how we honor the um, non-institutionalized, like un- non-professionalized, or we could say like non-credentialized um, right, forms right. of knowledge about objects and landscapes. It strikes me too that it's fair to say that there is a pernicious and um, continuous um, area of activity of, of looting tombs in Italy. So I don't want to come across as defending these people as like misunderstood or in fact, as, as folk heroes, if you, um, if you like think about it, like every year, at least there's a major bust of a looting operation by the um, art squad. So they know that objects continue to be um, looted and to be smuggled out of the country often for very high prices. So that is happening. That's a real problem. And it's a real problem in this country. But it's also not um, as easy as distilling this into good guys and bad guys. Right. Or cops and robbers. 
It's right. these shades of gray that is a huge gray area that um, people like one of the historical people I was researching never ever sold an art piece of artifact for money, and all of his collection has ended up in a museum now. But but he was so disgruntled at the end of his life with the way he was treated. He didn't want it to end up there because he had been treated so badly when he used to be sort of the only person doing anything remotely like scientific archaeology in the state. So it's it's exactly what you say, these shades of gray. And you don't ever want to minimize that there are people out there destroying sites for a profit, um, especially once we start getting kind of drug money involved. There's right. always that kind of scary part. But um, but I appreciate the way you handled that really complicated um, issue. Um, and I guess it's probably true almost anywhere. Yeah, you know, and it kind of goes back to that movie that was really popular um, in 2020, The oh, Dig. Yes. You know, and I that really, um, you know, that really shows the nuances of it. You know, that there's this gentleman who knows the site. He's not a professional in that sense. He's a digger. <laughs> and he, you know, he's digging the site. And he's the most knowledgeable. He has the most... Um, background in this history and this of this anglo-saxon history and yet the professional comes in and kind of takes all the credit and you know um and this gentleman whose name i can't remember now um doesn't get credit for this excavation that he did until just like last year you know who the the sutton who and it's in the british museum it's been there and so they finally put his name on it just recently, you know, that he's the one that did all this work. So I think that that really, not to glamorize or not to put these people up on a pedestal, like you said, but I mean, I think there's just, it's, there's so many shades of gray. So mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And you, you, and it's fair to say that folks I interviewed were aware of those shades of gray. So I can reflect on my conversations with Michele, and he was a child tomb robber. His dad took him out to the Etruscan tombs um, with a couple of trusted family members or neighbors. So in this sense, it was like um, an an adventure for him. But because he was small, he would be the first one sent down the shaft. And it was his job to shine a flashlight around and tell the adults whether it was worth their expanding the trench to come down. So he would shimmy down. He told me that it was scary fun, that it was thrilling, that he might be the first one to encounter this um, realm of the dead and the burial objects, first one in 2000 years. But that was also part of his family context. And this was um, how he bonded with his male relatives. It was a point of pride, something to talk about in school and stories to share. It was known about he acknowledged its legality, illegality. So he was aware of that grayness. And even as he would share these adventure stories, he would apologize and say, I know it was wrong. We knew it was wrong, but it was just so part of the culture, part of the community. Everybody did it and everybody knew. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to keep moving on. We could talk about that forever, <laughs> but we'll move on. So, so Fiona, your thesis is essentially that thieving, smuggling, legal skepticism, and populist or localist arguments against the state control of heritage actually help to perpetuate Italy's reputation as the world's leading cultural power. 
So can you explain how these threats and arguments um, work to support Italy's cultural superiority and allow it to wield such power over antiquities, both within within and beyond um, Italy's borders? So part of what has happened in Italy is that despite many years of working against the illegal art market and working against tomb robbing, these things persist. So what I try to explain in the book is how the Italian state has come to terms with this. I don't at all argue that they support these activities. There's not like some clandestine effort to support tomb robbing. It's more that it has not been able to root out a longstanding cultural practice. So what does it do with it? And so it has developed a narrative of constant threat to the Italian heritage that then helps to justify things like the art squad, tightened regulations or restrictions on the art market, um, legal action against um, foreign institutions that hold unprovenanced Italian goods, and of course, um, domestic policing of of private homes and of individuals um, thought to be engaged in, in tomb robbing. So I think what's fascinating about Italy is that it promotes this idea of a constant threat um, that also comes up in this public-private partnership arena that we talked about earlier. Um, you know, it, it will all be gone. The, the Colosseum will collapse, for example, if we don't accept the private donations to prop it up. That may be factually true. It's also um, significant for the story that it tells about the eternal threat to Italian cultural heritage. So when I make this case that thieving, smuggling, and localist arguments against state control are actually part of this very system that promotes um, cultural power, it's connected with this belief that Italy has a superiority that the entire world needs um, for the rest of global culture to kind of remain vibrant. It seems like, um, in part, that the uh, the the idea that like these are priceless, you know, artworks and objects, but yet they give you a value, right? Because like they they're like you know valued at, and or you know this museum bought it for it in some crazy sum or a private collector, and so it's this it's also a way of enhancing the idea that this is an amazing cultural power because no other nation could probably have the amount of artworks that would total up to that theoretical value of all those things. So it's this it's this weird thing of like it's priceless but we're going to put a price on it so you know how much power we really have, yeah. you know, and, and you know, you paid a million dollars for it at the Met, but we're just going to take it back because um, we're not going to buy it back, you know, yeah. <laughs> because you shouldn't have had it anyway. Priceless, it belongs to us. But I, I just found that um, so fascinating. And, and it does seem like we all perceive Italy as being this this central kind of font of amazing things. I mean, even today, as you mentioned, like, it's an avant-garde kind of hub for all sorts of things. I mean, Stanley Tucci's running around there right now doing this Netflix series about all the food and he's in Milan and he's here and he's there and there's all these antiquities in the background and we're like, yeah, I mean, it seems like a remarkable place. They've done a really good job convincing the world, I think, you know? 
It's a very sociological point that you make because we're interested in the power of myths and narrative and and the ways in which people are active interpreters in and participants in those myths and narratives. And that's right. It can be manifest in the the banal things of everyday like food um, and fashion. But also we can think about the more epochal, grand narratives of of civilization. So these myths and narratives that circulate about the threat to Italian history, Italian culture, Italy itself, are um, the active products of of living people. And so I really felt like this is where, again, archaeology and sociology have something Mm. to say to each other. This is where archaeological materials are doing real work in creating and reinforcing those narratives, making them feel real. Yeah. I mean, and and your point too about talking to museum professionals who say, we don't have enough space Mm -hmm. to care for in a way a conservationist would like every pot shirt, every everything. And yet the government wants to own it all and keep it all here. And and so there's that conundrum too. I mean, we see it in our own museums, right, Mm -hmm. Crystal? We go into museums and and you see these people struggling with places to store archaeological materials that have some scientific value um, for archaeologists, but to hold everything, um, it's it's challenging, and it does present real world issues. Um, but how do you start then saying, do certain things have less value than others? That opens up a huge box of of worms or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so Fiona, we just want to thank you so much for talking with us today. And before we finish, you know, please jump in if there's anything else you want to add. We just found your book um, fascinating and an important history with an, an incredible relevance to current issues surrounding heritage, not only in Italy, um, but any nation that's looking to preserve and, and um, do it in the name of um, their their people. Um, we have found significant parallels in the U.S. that I, I think Crystal and I will probably be talking about after we finish the podcast. So <laughs> we recommend the book to anyone um, interested in this complicated history surrounding art, cultural heritage, and the antiquities market in this amazing, beautiful place in Italy. Yeah. Thanks, Nancy and Crystal. It was such a treat to be here today in conversation with you. Thanks, Fiona. Thank you so much um, for your time today. And I just want to give a shout out. The name of the book, again, is Ruling Culture, Art Police, well, really the Art Squad, but Art Police, (laughs) Tomb Robbers, and the Rise of Cultural Power in Italy. So go find it. You can probably find it wherever you find your books and buy it because it's really, really good. We We certainly did enjoy it. So if you love this podcast, please tell a friend, share it. Make sure to subscribe so it shows up for you each week on your podcast app. We also have a Facebook page called The Dirt on the Past, so make sure to find that and like it. We put links to our podcast episodes, but we also include links to articles, books, and other things that we discuss during the podcast. So thanks for listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt Dirt on on the past. Past. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin. And thanks to Lawson Alegria for the music and John Chadwell for getting the podcast out into the world. Mm-hmm.